Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Well, our guest today on the Beeson Podcast is Dr. Sinclair Ferguson. It's a joy to have you with us here at Beeson Divinity School. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. I want to talk to you a little bit about preaching today. You are a preacher. You have been for some time. Um, but before you're a preacher, you are a believer in Jesus Christ. So tell us a little bit about who you are, uh, your background. Yes. Well, um, I'm Scottish, as most people are able to tell by my accent. Um, I was born and brought up in Glasgow, which is the major city in Scotland, although not the capital, which, of course, is Edinburgh. Um, I was brought up in a home where nobody went to church, um, so it wasn't a Christian home. Uh, but really, as I, the more I look back on it, it was really a wonderful home, was deeply loved by my parents. And in the early 1950s in Scotland, it was still regarded as, I suppose, part of a decent upbringing to send your children to Sunday school. Mm. So I was sent to the church at the end of the road. I mean, it could have been any church. But I had a number of Sunday school teachers uh, who deeply impressed me. I had no idea why at the time. They were just impressive people. Of course, the reason they impressed me was because they were real Christian people. Mm. And one of them encouraged me to join a Bible reading society when I was nine uh, called the Scripture Union, mm. which is, uh, had a great influence in the, the countries of the British, the old British Commonwealth. Mm. Exists, I think, in the United States, but isn't very well known. But it was an organization that uh, led you through the Bible in three years, and it produced very short commentaries for both children, teenagers, and adults. Um, And so, uh, encouraged by one of my Sunday school teachers, I started reading the Bible using what was called the Scripture Union Method. Mm -hmm. And I think for the next five years, I probably missed daily Bible reading and prayer no more than a handful of times. But basically, I thought that's what being a Christian was, mm. that and helping old ladies across the street. Mm. Uh, I, I was your kind of quintessential young Pharisee, really. Mm. Um, and then in this church, we got a new minister, and there was something of a spiritual awakening um, right through the church, uh, but particularly among young people I knew. And I think this was probably the first time I saw in people I knew what I'd been reading about in the scriptures. Mm. And uh, that was really a major influence in awakening me to understand that uh, I didn't really know Christ at all. And I remember during these Scripture Union Bible readings came, we were reading through John's Gospel. And these are the first words I remember ever really taking hold of me. Um, Jesus saying to the Jews, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life but you won't come to me to have life. And I remember thinking, that is exact, that's who I am, that's where I am. And that really I think, uh, I went through a period uh, that I don't need to go into the details about, of, of real conviction of sin um, and uh, really longing to know Christ had had one or two remarkable experiences in the process 
And then somebody said to me, uh, and this turned out to be kind of almost prophetically unusual, uh, he said, you should go along some Saturday night to St. George's Tron Church in the centre of Glasgow, because there you'll hear a message that will really help you. And uh, the church uh, was in the centre of Glasgow. I went along one Saturday night. Uh, they had meetings for young people. The minister then was a man called Tom Allen. And he preached on John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And so if somebody said to me, when were you converted? I would say it was on... And so if somebody said to me, when were you converted? I would say it was on that night. You know, sometimes I look back and I think that was certainly D-Day for me. Uh, you later became the, the minister. I became the assistant minister, and then I was associated in the ministry there, and uh, and then I became the minister. So I had a long, long history with that church and the people in it, some of whom are still in the church. Some of the people who are in the mm -hmm. building the night I was converted are still in the congregation. Now, are you a Presbyterian because you're Scottish? Now, that's a, that's a kind of chicken and egg <laughs> question, isn't it? Some of our listeners may not know that Church of Scotland is quite different from the Church of England. Yes. Scotland, so is, a little bit about Scotland is dominantly a Presbyterian country. Um, I think there is basically one Baptist denomination. There's one, basically one Episcopalian denomination. And I think there may now be six or seven Presbyterian denominations. Mm. Um so I was really brought up in a pr very, very Presbyterian ethos, um, and and so I, I, you know, I, I just became a Presbyterian because that was the church I was in. Um, I had friends who were Baptists. Um, I'm not sure if I should say this to you, Timothy, but when I was a really small boy, I thought they worshipped John the Baptist in the <laughs> Baptist church. I don't know who I thought they worshipped in the Presbyterian church. John the Presbyter, maybe. <laughs> And then, you know, over the years, I've become a Presbyterian by conviction. Um, I, although I sometimes say um, I have never seen exactly the style of Presbyterianism that is my conviction. <laughs> um, you know, it's, I think it's a wonderful form of church life when it's working biblically, but sometimes I think it tends to work more institutionally than mm -hmm. biblically. But a Presbyterian I am. Well, the Lord has used you as a pastor, as a preacher, as a writer. I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. But uh, tell us a little bit about your call to the ministry, how you, how you felt preaching was what God wanted you to do with your life. Interestingly, look, Sunday past, I, I was preaching on Isaiah chapter 6. And uh, I was thinking again about those words, you know, uh, you know, who am I going to send? Who will go for us? That just seemed to be spoken out there. Um. And it reminded me that my first conscious sense that uh, I ought to become a minister was overhearing a conversation between a woman and one of my friends. And she said to him, what are you going to do when you grow up? I guess we were. Certainly, I was 15. I'm not sure if I'd turned 16. If I'd turned 16, I was a very early 16. And I didn't know this about this friend. He said, I'm going to be a minister. And it was almost as though a light turned on in me. I, I have no memory of even thinking about what I should do with my life. Uh, but it, it, it just felt like that is it. You have just heard what you are to do. And that was very daunting for me for a number of reasons. One was 
um, as my wife would be able to tell you, I was by nature and actually by nurture as well paralytically shy. My father was one of the shyest people I, you know, I think I've ever known. Found social life quite difficult, um, and so the idea of becoming a minister and and speaking, I still find speaking difficult actually. Mm. Um, so those, you know, th- those were kind of <laughs> stunning things to me. But then the the third thing was. I knew if I was going into the Presbyterian ministry, I would need to go to university. And in those days, there were probably places in university for maybe 4% of the population. So it was very intellectually elitist, supposedly. But I didn't know anybody in my family tree who had ever been to university. Um, and so I, you know, I, wasn't, I wasn't even sure what a university was or how you would get there. Um, so... Um, the f- I think the first thing that happened was the gospel brought me out of myself because I had, when I became a Christian, I, I realized this is something I need to tell others. And it really forced me out of myself, however awkward I felt, you know, that to, to pray that I would have opportunities to witness to others. Um, and then, you know, I, I made my way to university and... Um, actually found that it really wasn't very, <laughs> it wasn't all that <laughs> difficult. Um, um, and where did you go to university? I went to Aberdeen. Oh, yeah. um, mm-hmm. And I went to Aberdeen for a very simple reason. In Scotland, there were four ancient universities, and I thought, if I'm going to go to a university, I'm going to go to our, the real deal, one that's old. And since I lived in Glasgow, I thought I should. it would be good for me to go away from home. And because I was a Glaswegian, a person from Glasgow, I was sufficiently prejudiced against Edinburgh, mm. which is, that's, you know, quite a north and south or east and west prejudice. I wasn't going to go to Edinburgh. I'd played golf competitively. I'd played for Scotland and Britain as a, as a youngster. Mm. Uh, and so because the gospel was more important to me than my golf, I thought I shouldn't go to St. Andrews because the temptations of St. Andrews with the golf courses <laughs> to be too much for me. Uh, that said, one of my sons did go. Uh, my son Christian is a student. Is that Andrews, right? Yes. Yeah, well, they get a fantastic <laughs> deal there if they're golfers. Yeah. So I went to Aberdeen, yeah. and it was as simple as that. And describe your your training for ministry there, and who influenced you? What, what did you study? Uh, and looking back on it, was that a good preparation for your life's work? I, in, I, I went to do an arts degree, first of all, and... Um, I, I majored in uh, philosophy and psychology. And then I stayed on in Aberdeen to do my divinity studies um, for two reasons, really. One, one was romantic, um, and the other was church. Um, I had, I had uh, found a church in which I felt I was altogether at home, uh, you know, wonderful fellowship of Christian people where God's word was ministered. And the interesting thing about this was, I guess before I'd gone to university, I had de- I remember discussing with friends a conviction I'd developed that if all of God's word was uh, inspired, as we used to say, or God breathed, as we all say mm-hmm. nowadays, uh, then then you ought to be able to preach it all. But I didn't. I didn't know anybody had ever done that. 
and uh, just before I went to university my folks had started coming to church and uh, my dad actually was an elder when he died um, and uh, somebody said to my dad when Sinclair goes to Aberdeen tell him to go and hear Willie Still who was minister in Aberdeen um, and so I went along first Sunday I was there and to my amazement what Mr Still was doing was what, what we know as Lectio Continua he was preaching systematically through the scriptures and that was really the biggest influence on my life um, so I stayed on there for theological studies had some very close friends who were in New College and they were all you know banging my door down to go to <laughs> New College but the, the church really meant so much to me and I'd met my, my wife to be, I mean I wasn't sure at that time that she would be be willing to be my wife to be but <laughs> she's Scottish as well she is yes <laughs> so I had a very mixed theological education at the conserv the most conservative end of it was the missiologist Andrew Walls oh, yeah. mm. and uh, New Testament scholar Howard Marshall yes um, then it went to the it went almost to the opposite extreme um, and in one or two you know we were we were of the generation who never raised our hands in class. There was really very little discussion. But once or twice, um, and I, you know, you can misjudge yourself. I don't think I was a particularly awkward student, although I may have seemed to be awkward in things I wrote. I, you know, difficult to judge that. But on a handful of occasions, I was just basically attacked by mm. faculty members. Mm. So it was a. It was a very broad range, you know, um, and um, for me, really, both the church and we had an extraordinary intervarsity group mm. in Aberdeen. Mm. Uh, it was uh, we didn't even sing at our meetings. Mm. We we had a welcome, we had an opening prayer, and then we expected somebody to expound the scriptures to us for an hour. And I still remember my very first year there, on consecutive weeks, we had really some of the most outstanding men in Britain expounding the scriptures to us. So it was, I thought I'd, I, I was still alive and had gone to heaven, really. It was, university was just wonderful. And because it was the good old days when if you got a university place, you got full scholarship. You know, I was richer than, you know, I was for many years <laughs> afterwards. Yeah. There weren't many lectures to go to. Yeah. I could read. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I look back and I'm just so grateful to God for the opportunity to gather nuts like a squirrel in those years. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, I didn't really realize at the time, but I was probably quite an able student. And so, mm -hmm. in a way, the, the work itself was... Gave me lots of time to mm -hmm. study. So what, one of the things we really uh, emphasize here at Beeson is the study of biblical languages. And in fact, yes. we require all students to yes. have both Greek yes. and Hebrew. Yes. Uh, say a little bit about that in your own training, and and particularly how you think it might function in the life of a working pastor. Yeah, that's a very good question, and I'm sure there are probably six proper answers to it. Um, do you know, you know, having taught where I've taught in the United States, um, I often say to students who have struggled with languages, um, you probably have no idea the privilege of studying Hebrew, for example, 
with somebody who really believes God has given his word in Hebrew mm. because to study it uh, you know in another context is is deadening mm. and very uninspiring mm. um, it's a great point you know and well I I have always avoided going to Israel in the past because people have every invitation I've had has been to go with a party of people and do the devotionals and so on it's not really my world but I went last year for the very first time you know and I'm singing along in Hebrew and so on and I thought um, because my Old Testament professor my last Hebrew exam he'd said to me if I'd known your Hebrew was this good I would have wanted you to do more studies and I actually said to him the only reason it was this good was because I didn't want to take another of your Hebrew exams <laughs> Um, but I thought, you know, somebody who had an interest in me would have said, and it was very easy in those days, I'll get you some money. You should go to Israel for three months. Mm. Just sink yourself into the language. You'll love it. Yeah. And it will it will invest something in you, in your life. So, you know, basically I say, get as much as you can. I think I'm also realist enough to know that most men don't get enough to be able to make scholarly linguistic judgments. But, you know, I do say to people, get enough so that you, you at least know enough to be able to distinguish the judgments that scholars who have that wisdom uh, and ability give to you. Um, because it is... You know, being able to read the scriptures or at least study them the way they have been given to us is really so enriching. Yeah. Um, although I kind of avoid, uh, I mean, it would be a rare Sunday, I would say to the congregation, the Hebrew really yeah. means. You don't want to become pedantic no. and kind of no. put on a professor's cap in the pulpit uh, so much. Yeah, no. that's right. What about the, the role of the Holy Spirit in preaching? Yes, that's a great question. Uh, and also something of a mystery um, isn't it um, it depends on the question you're asking Timothy um, I mean obviously I think every minister would say well the whole role is absolutely vital role of the Holy Spirit um, I think it depends kind of what you're asking well I have in mind in particular uh, how uh, is the pastor conscious of the Holy Spirit how is the preacher led by the Spirit in the preparation of the sermon uh, what is the focus of your preaching with reference good. to the third person of the divine trinity good um, well let me just take a kind of uh, shotgun approach to answering it because there's so many things to say um, I really very firmly have been influenced by the the reformation the, the Calvin's notion that you should never divide the word from the spirit mm -hmm. or the spirit from the word um, and so in preparation it seems to me the, the, the way one is conscious of the Spirit's ministry is not so much by a consciousness apart from the Word mm -hmm. but by the way in mm -hmm. which the Word unpacks itself to you as you wrestle with it um, I, the, if, I had, if I had money to get Rembrandt to do a painting for me I would give them very specific details as to how this was to be done but I would have in the place where I prepare uh, a picture of Jacob wrestling with the angel 
because that is probably the dominant picture in my mind as I approach the scriptures that I'm coming to them and I'm saying I am not going to let you go until you bless me mm. um, you know there's I, that wonderful spiritual uh, all is vain unless the spirit of the living God come down and Dr. Gardner Taylor a great African American preacher has the habit of saying every time before he preaches oh Lord let me preach Oh. It's not as though he has within yes. himself the capacity yes. to do this apart from the enabling yeah. of, of God the yes. Spirit. Is yes. that something that resonates yes. with you? Yes. Um, in, you know, in preparation, John Owen has this great saying. He says, I find that the word that goes with most power from me is the word that came with most power to me. Generally speaking, I think that's true. Generally speaking. Um, and um, so really I feel in my own preparation um, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking to the spirit to both to open up and then to impress on me the truth of the scriptures and then to help me to help me see how I can hand that back over to him as though I were a, a nurse in an operating room with a physician that I can hand the the, the, the the exposition over cleanly in the sense that it's faithful to scripture and appropriately in the sense that it's it's for these uh, particular people and then um, you know you, you go through kind of waves of doing things but for many many years I don't do this every time but for many years almost I would think without fail as because usually in my tradition we've been singing immediately before the sermon I would stop singing and pray those simple words Spirit of the Living God fall afresh on me mm, yeah. um, and then another um, another uh, a thing that's been very important to me I think in my thinking about preaching is that the, 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 the real preacher is Christ himself and he preaches his own word through the Spirit and that what I'm looking for is a participation in something like what happened at the Emmaus Road that when Christ opens the scriptures to us by the Spirit our hearts burn within us and fairly early on in, in, my, in my life as a minister it, it dawned on me when people said well whose ministry do you listen to that the answer was I listen to my own ministry mm. um, and sometimes like in a you know in a question and answer session with a, a group of people you know I've been asked whose ministry do you sit under I said well I do listen to other people but you know I'm busy so basically I listen to my own ministry and people say you mean you listen to recordings <laughs> you know <laughs> well, please help <laughs> no please um but the sense that you also are under Christ's ministry yeah. through his word and the yeah. power of the Holy Spirit. And so as, the minister is the servant of the word of God. Yes. You're certainly not the Lord that's of right. that word or the master of it, but the servant that's right. always under And that's it. helped me yeah. greatly. And it also helped me in my earlier days understand all that I would go through in preaching. Because I know, you know, you sometimes if you say to people, when they say something about about your preaching, you say, "Oh, I, w I wish the pulpit would have opened up that day and swallowed me." Mm. 
and occasionally when I felt I've really made a dog's dinner out of that I've had the courage to listen to the message when I thought I've been unclear and it's been crystal clear and I thought oh the Lord has really been you know he's using his own word by the spirit to keep me in my place and humble me and say you know you are the instrument and you are under Mm. the word What's the role of weakness in preaching? You know, Paul makes this great statement. Uh, Almost everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, well, there are, there are unusual experiences of conscious weakness, terrible weakness, in which the Lord's strength encamps. And I think sometimes you can be conscious of that even in the midst of your weakness. Um, but then underneath all of that I think is um, this sounds all I do not mean this in the Schleiermacher sense Mm. but this sense of dependence on the Lord Mm. so that sometimes people will say you know younger I mean I can hardly believe I'm saying younger ministers now Mm. you know I keep thinking I'm one of those younger ministers but they'll say somebody asked me just this last week do you ever get nervous and I, I said it's not that you know, in a way, that element, which is a natural element, is something that, by and large, experience deals with. But there is something that isn't nervousness. Mm-hmm. It's the knowledge. To me, it's the knowledge that, um, you know, I, I'll look out on the congregation as the service begins and say, Lord, how on earth is this word? going to be a help to all of these different people you know uh, you know I mean, say it's a really what the Puritans would have called a ripping up of the conscience and there's Mrs. Smith who's just lost her husband mm. you know and you think Lord please this is not something else and yet the amazing thing to me is the way in which the Lord seems to if he exalts himself in his word it, no matter where you are in scripture or what the theme is, Christ finds the people, and the people find Christ. And um, yeah, that's beautiful. You know, yeah. I remember Dr. Lloyd Jones used to say that he could forgive anything in a service as long as there was a sense of the Lord's presence, and yeah. I, I think I yeah. feel that as well. Yeah. Um, Spurgeon, my one of my favorite preachers, has this saying: he he takes a text and makes a beeline to the cross. Yeah. So how Christocentric is your preaching? <laughs> no. And what do you think of Spurgeon's statement? <laughs> Spurgeon, was an, um, Spurgeon was a genius, wasn't he, really? He was just intellectually was a genius. And, uh, you know, I think, to be honest, I'm not always impressed by how he gets there. What I am impressed by is that he does get there. Um, and I... You would you would need to ask others. I I being Christ centered and Christ full is a very. I mean, every right thinking minister ought to be able to say this, and I hope I I think it is a very significant element in my ministry. You know, there's a debate, particularly with reference to the Old Testament, is how Christocentric should your preaching be? Should you keep it just to the word of yes. old, God's ancient people? Or, you know, that's a great yeah. hermeneutical yes. question. So. Yes. Yeah. I, um, 
some of those hermeneutical questions are very difficult for the ordinary minister to get his mm-hmm. head round. Mm. And sometimes I think the books have driven people into a kind of formalistic way of doing it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I sometimes think it's a bit like, you know, we have children's sermons in both our morning and evening service, and sometimes in children's services, when the children ask questions, they know the answer is either Bible, sin, God, Jesus, or <laughs> mummy and daddy. And I think sometimes Christocentric Old Testament preaching can be a wee bit like that you know there are five ways to get to Jesus and depending on what the passage is so um, I really I really have tried to encourage others and I think I've tried to encourage myself not to fall back into a formal way of doing it but to realize that there really is a way to the cross and to Christ from anywhere Mm -hmm. in the Bible yeah um, because it's one divine revelation right. and uh, yes. a, a unity. Yes. Uh, St. Clair, what, what mistakes have you made in your preaching? Wow, that's a good one. Um, at, at first, you know, um, Dorothy, my wife, sometimes says, you know, if, so, if somebody says, that was a pretty heavy sermon today, she'll say, you should have met him 25 years ago. Um <laughs> I had a very interesting early experience because Mr. Still, who was my minister, had basically no formal education between the age of about 14 and 26, and it really showed in his preaching. He never went anywhere in a straight line. And my mindset was very different from that, but, I, you know, when I started, um, I, I just, I think it was far too dense. And interestingly, I worked with George Duncan, who was totally different from me, alliterated headings, you know. And he was the minister at St. George's Tron. He was the minister at St. George's Tron when I went there as the assistant once I left college. Um, And he was actually, he was tremendously well-known, was a great orator, but he was also really quite a shy man. And I was also a very shy young person. And so I don't think he was ever able to say to me, Sinclair, you know, let me tell you how you can do things better. And I was too shy to say to him, you know, how how is it you do this? You know, where's your, like, Alexander McLaren's golden hammer that you tap the text and yeah. it breaks down into three points? And so that's a mistake I think many young men straight out of seminary make. Um, and then you've also very little experience, you know, to be able to... Um, get some air and then I went to the most northerly church in the Church of Scotland mm-hmm. on a remote northern island mm-hmm. and uh, I think that was a hugely significant thing for me that I had to just learn to break things down mm-hmm. um, so much so now this is almost amusing now I think, you know, when you've been in a congregation some while and the people get used to you and they know you love them and so they'll take more from you. Sometimes, you know, seminary students will say, you know, if I've been preaching, this hasn't happened here, I should say, to your credit, uh, uh, Dean George. Um, they'll say, you know, now that was very fine, but you wouldn't preach that to your own congregation, meaning you've brought something special for mm. us seminary students. 
And I don't say, I just make a noise, but what I think is, no, actually, that was a dumbed-down version of something I preached to my own congregation <laughs> six months ago. Yeah. Because they are more used to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I think when you go to a... When you go to a congregation, I think Paul's words to Timothy, to me, in in my present ministry, they've really been almost like guiding lights to teach with with careful instruction and great patience. Mm. Um, You have been blessed not only to be a a wonderful proclaimer of God's Word, but also a great writer. You've written many books that have blessed so many people. Many, but not great. (laughs) Well, I I want you to talk about your writing just a little bit and tell us what you're writing now, what you hope to write in the future, kind of talk about writing as a spiritual discipline for a pastor. Well, you are so kind to ask about these things that I really am interested in. As I look back to high school days, I again, I you know, I, I'd hardly any, ins- I'd almost no inspiring teachers, and a lot of teachers who weren't very good. But there were one or two teachers that, looking back now, I realise I think must have thought I had some kind of gift for expressing myself in writing. So as I went on, I, you know, I really, I had this latent desire to to write, and. Uh, in God's providence, a publisher came along to me when I was I was probably 30 and said, we'd like you to write a book. And it was just at a time when I could make the time to make the attempt. And I, I swithered about it, but then I thought, you know, if I say no, I think I may spend the rest of my life thinking, I wonder if I could have done that. So I had the privilege of knowing, unless I made a complete mess of it, the book would be published. It wasn't a very good book, actually. I I blush to think about it now. Um, But it opened a door for me. Mm. And to my astonishment, after one had been published by this publisher, I actually had publishers coming to me Mm. asking. So I've had a kind of um, charmed life, in a way, as an Mm. author Mm. that... that, um, has really made me feel this is a door that God's opened and I must keep going mm-hmm. through it so long as it's open. So I I am um I've a book actually coming out, I think it's th- this next week. Mm-hmm. Um it's tougher to find the time in the course of pastoral ministry. Mm. But uh I've I've a book that's called By Grace Alone. Mm. I had a book come out a couple of years ago called In Christ Alone and this is a kind of companion. Um and of course, the first thing I've got to do is justify why there's another book on grace. <laughs> um, other thing I'm really excited about is uh, children's books. Mm-hmm. I've written a few children's books, um, and uh, I think this year the first three in a series. I'm embarrassed to say this when you're in the room, Timothy, on the history of the church oh, for I yeah. think eight-year-olds. Wonderful, illustrated wonderful. books. Um, And I'm doing it through particular characters in church history because I think I've come to believe that the the ordinary Christian knows almost nothing about his or her family, you know, the the history of the church, and therefore can't give their children any sense of it. And with the first children's books I wrote, my aim was, if I can put something down that both the parent and the child look at, both the parent and the child will learn and I thought 
I think it would be worth trying to do this with the history of the church as well. So the first three, which I hope will come out later on in the year, uh, the first one I did a couple of years ago, but the publisher said we can't publish a series when there's only one. Mm-hmm. So the first three are on uh, Ignatius of Antioch, mm-hmm. uh, Polycarp, and Irenaeus of Lyon. Oh, marvellous. Um, yeah. And I really... I could write for children all the time, actually. I love... Uh, the challenge of it. It's a form of catechesis. Of yes, it is, really. And it's yeah, interesting, yeah. these three, the teaching element, apart from the story element, the teaching element in it is different in each instance. Mm. You know, mm. um, you know. so I've made something of the fact that Irenaeus was obviously somebody who studied hard, you know, and, mm. and uh, the, the benefit of his ministry and of a bundle of other things. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but before I let you go, <clears throat> I want you to say a word to young pastors. There are many young pastors who are listening to us. Uh, a word of advice, of encouragement, of counsel to someone who's beginning in ministry uh, with the task of preaching. What would you say to them? Wow. You know, I think now I'm, I'm 61, um, and I wish I could begin again. Um, now, maybe part of that is I wish I could begin again knowing what I know now, <laughs> which is a different thing. But to be called to the ministry of the gospel is just is the highest privilege I can imagine. Mm-hmm. It really is. Mm-hmm. And it's a tough privilege as well. But the toughness, I think, has got to do with sanctifying the minister. And I think I would say just a couple of things. One is study as hard as you can. Be as well prepared as you can. You know, you are speaking the word of God. And the other thing is, love your people to death. Be patient with them and love them to death. Mm. And I remember, you know, I think John Newton may have been the wisest minister in 18th century England. And I remember reading his letters when I was a teenager and, and coming across him saying, I think my people will take anything from me now because they know I really love them. Mm. Um, and I think that combination of loving them while you're feeding them the strongest meat they can take is just a just a great combination and and live it out in your own life keep applying it to yourself before you apply it to them dr sinclair ferguson thank you for being with us at thank Eason, you so much school and thank you for your ministry thank uh, you. in god's it's church it's been a joy to be with you You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. We welcome your feedback, suggestions, and support. Beeson Divinity School is an evangelical, interdenominational divinity school training men and women for service in the Church of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work And we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.